Well, let me ask you this. What is that, if you close your eyes, what is that one thing that you desire, that you really desire to have? As you think of that, hold on. What is that one thing that you desire? What is that one thing that you would do almost anything to get? When you close those eyes, when you think about what's the first thing that comes to your mind, and you know, we all have one of those things. One of those things that's in our lives that we would really desire to have. You know, we just celebrated Christmas and we sat there with family and friends and hopefully had a time to reflect upon all of what God has done for you because God came as a baby to rescue your wretched soul and mine too. Uh, so it's a great time. But you know what the next day is? Boxing day. Which is not let's pack up all the boxes of things that we opened. It's let's go get more boxes from the store. And if you're crazy like me, I went to a store. I didn't buy anything. I was there because I have a van for someone who does want to buy something. And uh, you saw a lot of people who would do a lot of things for things that they desire. Like crazy things. I was crazy enough after that, after I went to Costco, which wasn't that bad actually. We went to Best Buy, which was a lot worse. And we just sat there, and I kind of just walked around watching everyone running around frantically. But when you close your eyes, what is that one thing that you desire, you really want, even you you think you might even need, what would you do for it? What extent would you go for that? And and this comes to this question. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning as we finish off our Advent series um, because we're a week behind. And I, but it's, it's appropriate anyways, because we're going to be looking at the Magi. Because the Magi did not come, as many of us think, and the Nativity actually shows, did not come at the birth of Jesus. They came later. So this is really appropriate, actually, when you think about it. It's like, I planned it. And I didn't. But here we are, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2. We don't know who these men were. We don't know their names or where they're from. Oh, we, we are only told that they come from the east. So whether they were Chaldeans or Arabians, we simply do not know. So when someone comes to you and says they know, they can't know because the Bible doesn't say that. Okay? So here we are, and we just don't know much about them. Whether they learned to, to expect Christ from the ten tribes who were in captivity and exile, or, or from the prophecies of Daniel, we don't know. Any who's, and, and, and the reality is, is it doesn't really matter to the story. Because that's not the point. The point is not to come back and regurgitate a bunch of information about where they came from and what they came and all the three presents that they brought. And, you know, that there were only three ones because we're assuming that there were three. But chapter 2 is divided into two sections. The first is the worship of the Magi and the second is actually the wrath of Herod, King Herod. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them to Matthew chapter 2, and follow along as I read here. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may go and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And, the going, in, and going into the house, they saw a child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opened their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we just praise you as we continue to worship you together. We come to magnify and to glorify your name, Lord, and to to worship you through the preaching of your word. And God, I want to preach so that you are indeed glorified. I want to speak of you and praise you and praise your name. And there's no ability to do that on my own. So God, I pray that by your spirit, you would help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. So the quest of the Magi in verses 1 to 2. I like the word quest because I'm a little bit of a nerd when it comes to things like this, like Lord of the Rings. The quest of the Magi. In these first few verses, we see this. Now after Jesus was born. Now after Jesus was born would be your first indication that the three wise men's song is wrong. What we have here is a showing that the Magi arrived in Jerusalem after the birth of Jesus had already happened. So they come to, 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 they come to this, this city, and here Herod, the king, sees about this. And this is what we see here, okay? We, all, we come and we close our eyes, we think of the wise men, and we think that there's three. But here's the problem with wise men, is that they're political leaders in their country. They're, they have political influence, they're powerful. They were the people who, who uh, were influencers, okay? So they wouldn't just come by themselves. They're coming from the east, they're traveling. There would have been soldiers, they would have been like camels. It would have been a whole caravan of people that would have come. This was a big thing, big enough that Herod notices and Herod summons them. They don't just show up and go knocking on Herod's palace door and go, hey, Herod, where's this king? Right? They didn't do that. Now, after Jesus is born, this is when they come, and they come to Bethlehem. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. As we will see later on, this is big. This is yet more evidence of God working through history to fulfill his promises. God is fulfilling his promises. He's a God that we can believe, that we can depend upon. It is impossible for all of these things to be done and orchestrated outside of a sovereign God. Man cannot do this. Only God can. 
And as Matthew continues on, he says, in the days of Herod the king, what we are looking at here is, is Jesus being born before 4 BC because King Herod would actually die at around 6. But what is interesting is this word king. In the days of Herod the king. Here it stands deliberately marked in contrast to what the Magi will say in verse 2. Because Herod is the king. But the baby that the wise men come is the king of the Jews. Which is who the Magi are actually looking for. It's an amazing thing when you look at this. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? He isn't going to become the king. He is the king. As born, as a baby, he is the king. And that is the one whom they come to worship and to glorify and later bow down. Unlike King Herod, who was made a king later in his life because he was just a really good smooth talker, he was a politician, Jesus was born the king. He is the true king. But these wise men, the Greek magi, the people that were coming to worship Jesus, they were Gentiles. And this is a very interesting thing that you can't quickly run away from. They were ancient astrologers interpreting astronomical phenomena. What we know is that the law of God actually condemns the very thing that they do for a living. Is it kind of making you kind of think a little bit more? It was why would God choose these pagans who he actually explicitly says in the Old Testament law that is wrong to come and to worship him. You know, astrologers are easy to ridicule. Isaiah even has this little fun mocking folly and superstition. He takes a great time mocking them and what they do. In the seedy sections of most cities and large towns, there is a district dominated by liquor store, pawn shops, and fortune sellers. Since fortune tellers always seem to live in rundown hovels complete with a a rusted pickup truck on cylinder blocks and a washing machine on the porch, we've got to wonder, right? If they can really tell the future, why are they so poor? Why not use their insights into the future to play the stock market for a nifty profits? But these are the type of people that God brings across the desert to worship him. He reveals himself to them. Despite their pagan background and powerful influence and wherever they come from in their courts, the Magi recognize and worship the Christ child for who he is. The grace of God is not tied to a place or family. It doesn't matter where you're from, who your parents were. That doesn't limit God's grace being poured out on you. See, what is in Matthew's mind is that Gentiles, those considered alien to God's purposes, exhibit an openness to God's purposes, even through the instrumental, uh, instrumentality of their own crafts. Even though they were fortune tellers, God still uses them. 
See, God reverses things and, and chooses to speak to stargazers through stars. Because after all, he is the creator of the stars. See, stars are significant to these men. They would have noticed something that crazy. Hey, what's up with this new star that's up in the sky? I wonder. And maybe they did. Maybe they did have some information from Daniel and the prophets and the ten tribes that were in exile. Maybe. But God still uses a star to bring these men across the desert from the east to worship him. God's grace is not limited or tied to a place or families. See, God descended to the Magi's level to communicate with them. Stars got their attention, so God used stars. To this day, God speaks in language that gets the attention of people. This is why we have people like Rebecca Drew who translate the word of God. Today, we imagine he might drop a pile of coins on the tile floor in a casino to get the attention of a gambler. See, some people might ask why God would want to speak to a casino gambler. Because this is his way. Because grace is for all people. The Magi were pagans serving a pagan king, yet God spoke to them. For that is what he does. He takes us as objects of wrath and transfers us into his kingdom of light, into children of God, as Ephesians 2 says. They went to see that newborn king is born in the capital. They weren't even familiar with the passages found in Micah. Because where does a king go? Where is a king born? Not in Bethlehem. Born in the capital. So the Magi show up at the capital city, expecting. They don't even go, as I said to Herod. Herod summoned them. But God still uses, they have a quest to worship the new king, this new king of the Jews, unlike the religious leaders that we'll see later on. And this born king of the Jews, notice, like I said, it doesn't say born to be king. This was the king. So let me ask, what would you do for what you desire the most? What have you spent time, resources, energy for? I don't know if any of us have ever walked across a desert, but we've done a lot. You know, as I was mentioning before, I was at Best Buy and with my sister because I was like, ooh, Best Buy, I like toys, I like gadgets and stuff like that, if you haven't noticed. And we went to Best Buy, and I'm walking around just thinking, oh, you know, there's nothing there. But it's packed, right? The TV section is packed. And some guy, some kid, he's like 20 years old, he comes up to me and says, hey, is there anything I can help you with? I'm like, no, I don't need anything. And he says this interesting comment, this 20-year-old, okay? So there's still hope for us, okay? He says this. He says, "Uh, yeah, I don't get why all these people are here. I don't need an 85-inch TV. I went, what? You're working at Best Buy, man. I was like, I hear you. I understand. There's lots of things I want. And I'm definitely not the type of person to wait in a long lineup and then have to... They had had a pickup zone in the parking lot for picking up your TV. And I'm seeking... And I got to ask myself, 
Am I seeking to worship the king who was born king or something else? Am I putting as much effort in my quest to buy a TV, fill in the blank, as I am to worship the king of kings and lord of lords? Because that's what the magi were doing. That's what the king, the, the, the wise men were doing. So I've got to ask myself, why, why would they do that? Why would they sacrifice so much? This isn't an easy trek. This isn't some like, hey, let's hop on their plane and take two hours to fly over there. No, this took months. Months. Following trade routes and, and stopping and, and fear of, of being uh, like attacked by pillagers and you know, death and thirst and hunger and all these things. You know, what would make them do such a thing? And as I think about that, there, there are four responses to people here. Four responses to the divine in verses 3 to 12. The first response is this, the anger of Herod. See, in verses two, chapter 2, verse 3, it says this, When Herod the king heard this, he was what? He was troubled. Herod was a crazy man. You can look him up in history books all over the place. He was crazy. Like, legit crazy. Herod heard that the wise men were seeking the one who was born, had been born king of the Jews. And he's like, wait a second here. I'm the king. Uh, This is my palace. This is my city. This is my area of rule. Last I checked, I didn't have a kid. So who is this king who's already the king? Not going to be already. I'm the king. What's going on? But he knew no child had been born into his house recently. He read the report as a threat. So he was troubled. He was angry. That is nothing new. See, Herod tended to see everything as a threat. He was nuts, as I said. Naturally, then, when King Herod heard this, the, the, this he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. See, King Herod had been king for about 30 years by this time. He was old and would die not long after Jesus' birth. Herod was an immensely gifted man, as crazy as he may have been. He was skilled in hand-to-hand combat. He had rhetoric. He was skilled in politics. He excelled at famine relief and building projects. Remember, this is the guy who built the temple. This guy knew how to build stuff. He was a very talented man, but he became cruel and paranoid later in life, bent on bent all his efforts to retain his power. That's all he wanted. He killed his wife and his sons because he wanted to keep power. The problem with this is that like he's human and he dies. But he was so paranoid. He perpetually feared plots for his life. So to say this, his, his order to kill all the young males that we see later on in chapter 2, verse 16, in hopes of killing Jesus, is wholly consistent with the historic portrait of who Herod is, a talented but violent and immoral ruler. This is who Herod was. He wanted power, and he would do whatever he would take to keep it. 
I saw this beautifully painted picture not too long ago portraying that very scene in, in chapter 2, verse 16 of a mother holding her toddler son in a corner, dark corner, as in the faded background you could see soldiers running around with swords up in their hands. It was a terrifying moment. Who would cause a man to sell his soldiers to go into a town and kill every boy under a specific age? That was the type of man he was. And he would do anything to hold on to his power. He would not give up his rule for this ruler. He would not submit to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, creator of the universe, holy and just. He would not submit himself to what Psalms 147 says. He determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. He was king, not God. And he was going to do whatever he could do to do it, to take care of that. So what is your reaction to the king that has come? As Herod becomes more angry and paranoid, the people themselves become more anxious because you've got to think, if your ruler is crazy, well, what's he going to do? So the anxiousness of the people of Jerusalem is the second response. Matthew says that when Herod became disturbed, all Jerusalem became disturbed with him. Think of Herod as the prototype of every tyrant through all the centuries. He was talented, he was fearless, vain, cruel, and violent. In Jerusalem, if Herod was disturbed, everybody got disturbed. See, Matthew is is showing the future of Jesus who arouses hostility and resentment, upheaval and suffering. So we understand the lack of enthusiasm among people. Anxiety and fear paralyze them. Yet some were still waiting for the deliverer. They should not be indifferent to the Magi's report, but they were. Why were they? Because, you know, the Magi's coming was actually prophesied as well in Jeremiah 23. Isaiah said, nations will come to your light, and the Magi represented the nations in Isaiah 60. Numbers prophesied, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. So there was reason for the learned and even the attentive commoner to really understand that these Magi were not just some fluke. Yet their response to the coming of the king was still anxiety. The people were more fixated on Herod than they were on the one who put him there, as Romans 13.1 says. So what is your reaction to the king of kings? Because even the religious leaders had a reaction. Probably one of the most interesting ones, I think. So the response number three is the apathy of the priests and the religious leaders. See, the leaders were apathetic. Think about this, okay? Let me paint the picture again. The Magi come, Herod summons them, and he's troubled. He's freaking out. I want power. Israel, all of Jerusalem becomes troubled along with them. So Herod, like any person, would say, well, is there any truth to this statement? Let me find out. So he calls the chief priests and the, and, and the religious leaders, the scribes, 
two different groups of people that actually did not like each other at all. And he asked him a simple question. What's this thing about the Christ? Where is he supposed to be born? And they told him in verse 5, In Bethlehem in Judea, for it is written by the prophet in Micah chapter 5, verse 3. See, if these two people that didn't get along on any circumstances could come up with the right answer and agree with one another, it had to be true. That's probably what I would go with too. Oh, these two people, when two people are agreeing and they don't ever agree, then you should listen. Okay, that's just wisdom. Okay? So they come and they say, he's born. And they give them this, this idea. See, the scribes were conservative teachers of the Bible, but the chief priests, they were the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were willing to accommodate they were willing to compromise so that they could keep their rule. So you had the very staunch conservative with what we would consider the liberal. And they're coming together and they're agreeing. When was the last time you saw that happen? You kind of got to be like, what is going on? But when you look at these religious leaders, they understand that the words were written by a prophet, but the prophet wrote as God moved them. Both groups passed their Bible quiz. Both of them get an A. These were the kids in Sunday school, if you grew up in the church, that could do the sword drill. Right? Remember that? That's a little old school. Right? They don't do that anymore. But I, I used to cheat. I used to put my finger in. Anyways. Or, or the one who could rattle off the books of the Bible front and backwards. These were those kids. They knew the Bible. They, they went to Bible college and seminary. They understood. They knew where the prophecy was found, and they knew the prophecy came from God. They earned an A in, in this, in their Bible knowledge. But after the scribes and priests give their answer, we have no other recollection of them. We don't hear from them ever again. They expect their deliverer, and here are the reports that fit the prophecy, yet Matthew implies they do absolutely nothing. Nothing. They don't go and worship. They do nothing. They answer the king and they go home. They sit on their couches and put up their feet. Maybe they tell their families, hey, the king sought my counsel today and I had the answer he sought. He was really pleased with me. See, there's a lot of apathy there, isn't there? Their response to the coming king of kings and lord of lords was pure apathy. They didn't care. The apathy of the teachers and the priests is pathetic but all too typical, isn't it? Before I come and like, hey, look at this is you, you really need to be pointing your finger at yourself because religious people are notorious for this. People were often the last, religious people were often the last to receive Jesus throughout all the Gospels. If the pagans had seen Jesus' signs, if they had heard his preaching, Jesus says that they would have repented. He says that in Matthew 11 and 12. But the religious people saw no need to repent. 
It was true then and remains all too true today. Sometimes those who, are most know, who know the faith the most have the least in their heart. They should have joined the Magi and traveled to, to Bethlehem. I see this more in people who God recently called to themselves. The, the, the lack of apathy. They're excited. Right? You see a person who God recently calls to themselves and they just want to absorb everything. They're the people who are going out in the streets telling people about Jesus and we're like, oh, hold on, don't do that. Right? Well, don't do that. You've got to be trained and you've got to do all these things in order to tell other people about Jesus. See, what a heart-wrenching picture this is of our human nature. How often the same kind of thing may be seen among ourselves. How often the very persons who live closest to the means of grace are those who neglect the most. So look at this text. These are religious leaders. These are the pastors. They're ready to give an answer. They know their Bible so well. But they never went to Jerusalem to seek the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Not once. And we'll see later on the reaction to him as he grows older and begins his earthly ministry. It is an excellent thing when we, when we use our head knowledge right. But when we rest on that head knowledge, when that is our, our, our ticket into heaven... We don't get into heaven. It's the wrong ticket. What is the state of your heart? This is the question. Have you lost the wonder of what it means to have Jesus Christ born of a virgin? Have you lost sight of what our greatest dilemma is? What is the state of your heart? Is it at rest with God or at war with Him? You can ask You need to ask yourselves these questions. We need to rest only in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ has died for our sins and that he rose again. It's a beautiful thing. We've tried a lot to see meaning in in the Magi. You know, we look at their gold for royalty, their frankincense for deity, their myrrh pointing to the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. I've heard them all. I've actually acted in a few plays that have to do with this. But Matthew says nothing about these things. Why? Because he wants us to focus on what the text is saying. He wants us to see the response of the wise men in comparison to the other three. See, the response number four is this, the adoration of the wise men. Think about who the wise men are. Think about where they come from. Think about who they are what they do for a living, how they make their money. And then think of verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. It's crazy, right? You'd think it would be the religious leaders, wouldn't you? Do you see the amazing faith of the wise men that is coming out here? They believed in Christ when they had never seen him. But that was not even all of it. They believed in him when the scribes and the Pharisees didn't even believe in him. 
But that's not even all of it. They believed in Jesus when they saw him as a toddler being bounced on Mary's lap. And they worshipped him. They worshipped him as king. This was the crowning point of their faith. They saw no miracles, no to convince them. They heard no teachings to persuade them. They didn't see any signs of divinity and greatness to make them amazed outside of the star. They saw nothing but a toddler. Helpless toddler. We've all seen toddlers. They need more help than anything. They're not just helpless. Helpless and weak and needing a mother's care like any, any other toddler. And yet, when they saw the child, they believed that they saw the divine Savior of the world and they fell down and worshipped him. What is your response? Where else do you see faith like that in the Bible? I keep thinking about Gideon. Gideon needed, like, repeated. All right, God, okay. So everything else is wet and this is dry. Okay, tomorrow, can you reverse that? And then I'm going to do it again and flip things over. How much convincing do we need as people? And these guys travel all across the desert and then they worship a baby. What faith we see in this. The thief saw one dying. The thief on the cross beside Jesus saw one dying the death of a criminal and yet prayed to him and called him Lord. The wise men saw a toddler on the lap of a poor woman and yet worshipped him and confessed that he was Christ. How amazing is it to see people believe like this? This is the kind of faith that God delights and honors in. We see the proof of that at this very Christmas season, right? I'm preaching about wise men that we don't know anything else about. You think God kind of honored that? They really are an example of faith for us to follow. Let us not be ashamed to believe in Jesus and confess him, even when all people around us are ridiculing and don't believe. Because you've got to imagine these people showing up in Jerusalem with all of their their posse there and going like how many how many people were being made fun of like how many people were making fun of them don't you and I have a ton more evidence like a ton than the magi a ton more evidence that would cause us to believe we have all of the historical accounts of what God has done throughout history. And on top of that, you have your own testimony of all the things that God has done for you. Do we not have a ton more evidence of all the things that he has done? Don't you and I have no reason to doubt? But where is my faith? Where is your faith? So what? There are sacrifices and pleasures in giving to God who loved us and gave himself for us. What is your response when you think of a king that is worthy of everything, who came as a baby? What is your response? 
A king who demands loyalty and submission is your back up against him? Are you angry? How dare you, God, call me to submit to you? I'm king of my life. Are you anxious? Are you worrying about all the other things that are going on around you and not resting in the one who is king of kings and lord of lords? Are you apathetic? When you read and read of how the glorious God, our loving and eternal creator who always existed and is fully independent, lacking nothing in himself, who is so holy and pure that nothing imperfect can enter his presence, who is just always doing what is right as he is the final standard of truth, who is also gracious and merciful, what is in your heart as you reflect on him? Is there anything there? Or are you adoring him? Falling on your knees because Jesus Christ came into the world as a man to live a life perfectly obedient for the payment of sin who would grow to die on the cross to take the punishment that I deserve, that you deserve to set us free from our sin. Who three days later would rise again from the dead dead, defeating sin and death and earning eternal life for those who trust him. See, there will be sacrifices. The Bible is very clear on that. You come to Jesus, there will be sacrifices. To follow Christ is to take up your cross and to follow him. There are sacrifices and pleasures in giving to God who loved us and gave himself for us. So let me end with this final thought, because you may be asking this, why suffer? Because I got it pretty good. Let me point you to what Matthew quotes Jesus later on in Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And let me follow up with these words from another very long dead pastor. Let us learn in the last place that the second coming of Jesus is the time when his people shall receive the reward. Look at 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels, in the glory of his Father, and then he will pray each person according to what he has done. See, there's a lot of wisdom in this, in, these, in this saying of our Lord's. When viewing in connection with the preceding verses, he knows the heart of man. He knows how soon we are ready to be cast down and like Israel of old to be discouraged by the way He therefore holds out to us a gracious promise. He reminds us that he has yet to come a second time. As surely as he came the first time, 
He tells us that this is the time when his disciples shall receive their good things. There will be glory and honor and reward in abundance one day for all who have served and loved Jesus. But it is to be the dispensation of the second advent and not the first. The bitter must come before the sweet, the cross before the crown. The first advent is the dispensation of the crucifixion. The second advent is the dispensation of the kingdom. We must submit to take part with our Lord in his humiliation if we mean ever to share in his glory. And now let us not leave these verses without serious self-inquiry as to the matter which they contain. We have heard of the necessity of taking up the cross and denying ourselves. Have we taken it up? And are we carrying it daily? We have heard the value of the soul. Do we live as if we believed it? We have heard of Christ's second advent. Do we look forward to it with hope and joy? Happy is that person who can give a satisfactory answer to these questions. What is your response to the King of kings and Lord of lords? There are sacrifices and pleasures in giving to the God who loves us and gave himself for us. Let us continue to praise him. Father God, we just thank you for who you are and what you have done for us. We pray that you may be glorified and honored as we continue to worship you. Lord, I pray that we would see our sacrifices in this life in light of our future hope. Just as the Magi, as the wise men did, as they crossed the the deserts and the plains to, to seek the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, may we adore you with everything we have. Amen.